Well, hey, good morning. It's good to see you. There we are. Hey, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us. Tyler, we love you, bro. We're so glad that you're joining the team. And uh, just be praying for us as a church as we together, not just him, but together we figure out how to missionally engage and serve our city. So that's, that's, that's a big deal to us. We're really excited about it. Hey, so if you're just joining us and you don't know who I am, my name is Andrew and I'm one of the pastors here and I'm really excited about today. Before we jump into Jonah, uh, we're going to do just a standalone on something that is really near and dear to our heart as a church. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And while you're headed that way, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I just want to say if you're here and you're not a Christian or uh, you, would, you wouldn't classify yourself as a follower of Jesus, the doubt, the skepticism, the questions, none of it's off limits, and we're really glad that you are worshiping with us today, so feel free to ask us whatever you want to ask. First um, Corinthians 12, let me read our teaching text for this morning, and then we're just going to jump right on in, starting in verse 1, and if you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone, And to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, and to to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Today, we're talking about what it looks like to be a spirit-filled, gospel-centered church that doesn't just live in the tension of those two realities, but what does it look like, what does it mean to be a church that actually eager desire, eagerly desires the spiritual gifts, especially that we may prophesy? What does it mean to be spirit-filled? What, what comes to your mind when you think of that? Uh, maybe some of, some of these images pop into your brain. And and you're like, you know, if this is what this church is about, then I just don't want anything to do with it. By the way, I don't know if you've heard or got on YouTube and seen uh, Benny Hinn, Let the Bodies Hit the Floor, but do yourself a favor today and watch that video. It's fantastic. Uh, So you think, yeah, that's scary and weird. I don't want that. Or maybe you think, yeah, slain in the spirit, this is what it is to be spirit-filled, and and if we really go for it as a church, then every Sunday is going to look like this. And nope, not going to do it. I'm going to find a new place. Thanks so much. And this is all you think of. This is what comes to mind, these images, right? Or maybe it's this. And and you go, you know, the the big hair and the raising money for weird things and the bad theology, like, I just, I can't do it, you know? Like, is it possible to just have good theology and still love Jesus? Or do we have to get weird and and dress funky too? Or maybe it's this. Um, If you don't know, this is Creflo Dollar. This was a short-lived campaign. He was trying to raise 
no lie, $65 million for a private jet, like one of the most expensive jets in the world, uh, so that he could take the gospel all across the world. Because you need a $65 million jet if you're going to effectively share the gospel with people. Not really, ever. Never do you need that. And so when you think of spirit-filled or charismatic and you go, yeah, yeah, that's what that is. No, I don't want any part of it. And it feels like we only offer people two options. You can either be a church that really loves the Bible and loves theology and wants to stand underneath the authority of the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. And you're going to have good doctrine and you're going to read good books by dead guys. And so that's your option. And you'll be kind of, you know, cold and intellectually up in your head all the time and never raise your hands and worship or you can be spirit-filled but if you're going to be spirit-filled even though you'll have lots of passion and excitement and energy and all these fun things you're also going to slip into bad doctrine and heresy and you won't really value or care about the word of God and what what I want to just tell you today is that there's been this divorce in the history of the church between the word and spirit and and you need to hear this what God has joined together let no Christian or church ever separate these two things don't have to live in two separate worlds that the same guy who wrote Romans 9 also wrote 1 Corinthians 12 and the apostle Paul really values and loves the spiritual gifts. And what I would love for you to do is instead of thinking of those images when you hear the word spirit-filled, what I'd love for you to do is think of Jesus who is the most spirit-filled human being, though he was God, the most spirit-filled human being that ever walked the earth. And if you don't know Jesus who was God, he actually lived his earthly life out of his humanity. Philippians 2 tells us that he didn't, he didn't uh, tap into his rights of divinity, but he lived out of his, humi- his humanity in humility by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And the same way that he was able to do all the miracles and all the things that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's now given to us by grace. And what you see in the book of Acts onward is that you and I actually live in the age of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, I'm giving it to you. You've, you have the helper. You have uh, presence and power from the Spirit to do life and ministry and mission. Now, if you read the Bible, you know that this is not a story from Acts to today. This is not a story of up and to the right, of just sheer success and revival and amazing things happening. That when you get to about 20 to 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus, you stumble across the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church is the opposite of the church that we just got done studying. We just got done studying the Philippian church, one of the best churches in the New Testament. Today we're going to talk about one of the worst churches in the New Testament, the Corinthian church. Why is this a bad church? What's happening? Well, here's a few things. Um, The church was splitting over who their favorite uh, preacher was. So you had some people that were like, yeah, I podcast Peter, and it's phenomenal. I'm learning so much. And other people like, yeah, have you tried Paul's podcast? It's so good. I mean, he's so intellectual and brilliant and helpful. And then there's always that guy that's like, yeah, well, I follow Jesus, you know. There's always that person in the friend circle. You're like, okay, thanks for that. And that's what was happening. They're literally dividing over Paul and Apollos and Peter and Jesus as if they weren't on the same team. You had a, a young man in the church who was sleeping with what we think was his mother-in-law. And they were saying, yeah, but the grace of God is for everybody and he's forgiven us so now we can live however we want. It doesn't matter. Sexual sin's okay. So he's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And Paul's like, no, that's not okay. You need to kick that guy out of church because he's claiming to be a Christian, but his life isn't marked by the grace of God. His life is marked by incredible immorality and rejection of everything that Jesus stands for. You have... 
Christians in the church that relationally are having fallout can't get along. So instead of reconciling like they're supposed to, they're suing each other. And it's just making their, their name and their reputation and really the reputation of Jesus look bad in the city of Corinth. You have new Christians coming to faith and they're divorcing their spouses who aren't Christians because they're like, well, now that I'm, a, I'm following Jesus, I can't also be married to this unbeliever. And Paul's like pulling his hair out and like, no, please don't do this. Uh, and then this one's weird and odd. Uh, a big portion of the church, especially the wealthy in the church of Corinth, they were getting drunk on communion wine. Every Sunday, they're getting together. And I just want to point out, like, how many shots of communion wine do you have to do to get drunk? Like, that's, I don't even know if we have enough wine in this church to get a person drunk, right? And so here they are, and they're just going to town, getting drunk off the wine. And then finally, when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, they're a total train wreck. They're just, when you think of charismania, this is the church, no rules, no order, it's chaos, everybody's doing crazy stuff, they're swinging from the chandeliers, and Paul's writing to them, and what you would expect to read is, okay, you guys have lost your privilege to use the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you can no longer walk in the gifts, sit in the corner, you're in spiritual timeout, but instead what we have is something very, very different. So there's some things that we can learn from this church, and I just want you to think about this. If Paul were to write to Frontline, what would he say? He's writing to this church. It's just going for it with the Holy Spirit. What would he say to us if he were to write, for, write a letter to us? So here's what he says. He's just writing them a letter, and, and I want to give you just a few things and then talk specifically about prophecy, and then we'll go from there. So number one, spiritual gifts, I want you to see this, are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. L look at this. This is chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are a variety, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now look at this, verse 7. To each, to each Christian, to each believer, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you want to know what spiritual gifts are, prophecy and healing and tongues and miracles, and administration, and teaching, and helping, and all the gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 3, and, and Romans chapter 12, and all the, all the gifts that are mentioned in the Bible, if you want to know what they are, at the core of what they are, it's not God tossing stuff down from heaven for you to catch. Like, hey, go long for prophecy. Hope you get it. All right, got it. No, it's, it's any time uh, someone has a prophetic word or, or someone gets healed or there's a miracle that happens or, or someone is walking in the power of the Spirit and their gift of teaching or whatever. It is the Holy Spirit of God himself literally manifesting his life and his power in the church. Spiritual gifts are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Sam Storms, a good friend of mine, he mentored me for uh, over, over a year, just a great guy. Here's what he says. He says, spiritual gifts are the presence of the Spirit himself coming to relatively clear, even dramatic expression in the way that we do ministry. Gifts, look at this, are God going public among his people. So if you were to 
reject spiritual gifts, and, and I'm just going to assume that they're alive and well today. Theologically, I've done the work, and I don't have time in the sermon to show you why I believe that they're still alive today, so I'm just kind of coming in with this assumption that, yeah, they're real, they're true, they're, they're all existing, they're all apart. Everything that the early church was doing then, we can do today, and, and if you hear that and you have skepticism or you're kind of like this and pushing them away, I, I just want you to realize you're not just pushing away some theological reality. You are pushing away the Spirit of God himself because gifts are the Spirit manifesting in the life of the church. It's not separate from the giver. So if you are skeptical, you're skeptical of him. If you're doing this, you're doing this to him. And if you're hungry and eager and desiring gifts, you're hungry and you're eager and you're desiring the Spirit of God himself. They're manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Number two, spiritual gifts are gifts of God's grace. They're gifts of God's grace. Here's why that matters. Uh, I, I sometimes encounter Christians that are like, you know, I've read the stories in the Bible. I've read the books, and I've read other people and, and listened to people, and I'm just not that spiritual. I love Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I read the Bible, but I'm just not like that. I'm not, I'm not spiritually powerful, and I don't have this intimate profound prayer life and if you knew me I still struggle with a couple things and I've still got baggage and sin in my life and so I'm, I'm not eligible for these gifts like it's just not for me but I, what I want you to realize is that the word that is used starting in chapter 12 verse 4 for spiritual gifts in the Greek and it's used for the rest of the chapter and even in 1 Corinthians 14 is charismata in Greek and what that means is grace charis gifts mata in other words, these are not gifts that God gives to the deserving, to people that have it all together, to the spiritual ones, to those that really are in tune with the Holy Spirit and have a deep, intimate prayer life. These are gifts that God gives to all of those of us who are undeserving, which, just if you want a heads up, is literally every person in this room. It's all the ones that don't have a phenomenal prayer life and don't, you know, are just killing it in the kingdom of God. These are for normal, average Joe types of people because they're gifts of the grace of God. So please don't discount yourself from this and think that this isn't something that you can walk in and this isn't something that you can do. If you've given your life to Jesus and you have nothing else to offer, by grace, he is offering more of himself to you. And he wants you to be able to walk in these things. They're gifts of his grace. Everybody gets to play. Number three, spiritual gifts can be acquired, developed, and neglected. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but um, some of you actually think that when you became a Christian, all right, I got my gift, and you got your gift. It's a one and done deal, and now we're, let's just be happy with what we have. And so there's no hunger, and there's no pursuit for more gifts. But actually what you see in Scripture is this encouragement for Christians to eagerly desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. So it's like, yeah, you should desire more gifts. If you've got the gift of teaching, you should also pray for the gift of prophecy. If you've got the gift of prophecy, you should consider praying for the gift of administration because we all know that the church needs more people with that gift, right? Um, may, maybe you should pray for the gift of tongues. I don't know what it is, but like you have a gift if you're a follower of Jesus, and now you can actually pursue and earnestly desire more gifts. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have told you multiple times at the end of chapter 12, at the beginning of chapter 14, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts if he knew that God had no intention of giving you any more. He's already writing to Christians. You can acquire new gifts. You can develop your gift. I think I have the gift of teaching, hopefully. 
You would agree? And so um, that's something that I, I can hone and work on and acquire and try to get better. Please, by God's grace, I want to get better for your sake. And this is a gift that, by God's grace, I can, I can hone and I can develop. Um, you can neglect gifts to the point to where they're almost non-existent. You forget about them. Here's what's so crazy is you've you got to think in categories like this. Some gifts that God gives are permanent or residential. Some gifts are occasional or circumstantial. Here's what I mean. Um, the gift of teaching is a permanent gift. Thank God that I don't have to stand up every Sunday and go, all right, guys, I'm going to pray for the gift of teaching real quick. You guys just hang out for a few minutes. This won't take long. And I just pray and wait that God drops the gift of teaching. Oh, okay, I got it. Now I can step into that gift and teach. No, it's a gift that I just have by his grace. That's something I can walk in by his grace. It's a permanent gift. Gifts like helping, administrating, the gift of tongues. That's a gift that I have. Not all Christians pray in tongues. I pray in tongues. This is a gift that you can just walk in at will. It's not like it overtakes you and you fall to the floor and you start saying, no, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. There are other gifts, though, that are more occasional or circumstantial. So, like, uh, here's a great example. The gift of healing. You can't just walk into a, a room and be like, healed, 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 done, got it. It's actually like we're all praying, God, would you heal this sick person? And sometimes he says no. A lot of times he says yes. And that's an occasional gift. It's a circumstantial gift that he decides to give. Or same with prophecy. I can't be like, all right, hey, guys, I'm going to go ahead and prophesy right now. I have to wait for the Lord to speak to me, and then I can do that. Miracles, same way. So some gifts are permanent. Some are occasional. Number four, spiritual gifts build up and edify the church. They build up and edify the church. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now look at what he says. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and their encouragement and their consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, which isn't bad. It's not a bad thing to build up yourself. That's why we read the Bible. It's why we listen to podcasts. That's why we listen to worship music in our cars. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. That's weird. Some of you didn't know that was in the Bible. Well, there you go. Now you know. That's actually said by the Apostle Paul. I want you all to speak in tongues, he says, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Do you see what he's saying here? That gifts, they're all good and they build ourselves up and all these things and they edify us, but gifts are even better when they build up the church because that's why God gave them. He cares about ministry. He cares about mission. He cares about us growing into maturity and this is why the gifts exist. And then finally, number five, and if I could tell you anything about the gifts of the Spirit, this would be it. Abuse doesn't warrant neglect. Abuse does not warrant neglect. Some of you, you don't have any good reason for not desiring these gifts. You don't have any good reason to not want or crave these gifts. You've just seen the abuse and you're terrified. You're freaked out. And, and, and you know if we go there as a church, then we're going to open up some stuff and it's, it could get crazy. And so when you hear this, you go, no, there's so many abuses. It's just too dangerous. It's not worth it. But look at what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 12.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. Who's he writing to? The Corinthian church? 
just the craziest church in the Bible, just the church that if anybody deserved to never have the right to practice the gifts ever again, it was them. And he's writing to them saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. And then in fact, he goes a step further in chapter 14, verse one, pursue love, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Paul goes to the craziest church, the most charismania church in the New Testament, and he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, and I really want you to desire these gifts. The Greek word for desire is uh, zelute, and it literally in Greek means this. It's where we get the word zealous. It means to strive after, to strongly desire, to be zealous for, to be jealous about, to passionately seek, to make much of. Are you doing that to the gifts of the Spirit? If you're not a Christian, you get a pass. But if you're a follower of Jesus, not only do you not get a pass, but I would actually tell you that you are living, whether you realize it or not, sinfully, if you're living in opposition to the gifts of the Spirit. You are commanded, not from Pastor Andrew, but from the Apostle Paul, and more importantly, from the Holy Spirit of God who inspired these texts to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. By the way, the most abused spiritual gift in the history of the church, what is it? It's the gift of teaching. The gift of teaching has led more people astray than any other gift, and yet we don't see people going, well, we should just get rid of the gift of teaching. So it's a really lousy argument to say because something's been abused that we should do away with it because there's a proper, right, godly, biblical way to do these things. Yeah, thank you for that. That makes me preach so much better when people do that. Just as a little tidbit of advice for you. Helps me, thanks for that. Yes, all right, so now I'm ready. Let's move to this. What I wanna do is I actually wanna transition in this moment. This is a part of the sermon where I want to kind of underline for you not just the earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that we may prophesy. What's that all about? What is the gift of prophecy? Well, the gift of prophecy is not predicting the future. Some of you, that's what you think the gift is. It's like, thus saith the Lord, and you gotta say it in a really weird old English voice. Hey, little free advice, God doesn't speak old English, right? He used to speak old English when English was old, right? He doesn't speak old English now. He speaks you and me. It's not predicting the future. And seven days, that's not what prophecy is. It's just not. New Testament prophecy is primarily meant for edification and consolation and encouragement and building up. It's not primarily, well, it's not at all, powerful preaching. The Puritans were big on, I mean, they had a lot of things that were wrong, and one of them was uh, this idea of prophecy being powerful preaching. You are really being prophetic up there, brother. Well, maybe, but maybe not. I mean, because prophecy is not powerful preaching. And then finally, prophecy is not, and some of you need to hear this, this uncontrollable experience that forces itself upon you and you have no idea what's happening. You kind of fall into this trance and you just mm, start saying things. It's not the way the gift works. Prophecy, as Dr. Sam Storms helpfully puts in a definition for us, is the human report of a divine revelation. Now, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14.30, and I'm not gonna read this text to you, but write it down or look at it, 1 Corinthians 14.30, you're gonna see that that text talks about prophecy as a revelation. And this is so important for you to understand that there are actually, and I'm just gonna go ahead and say this part, part of it, Chris, if you could throw this slide up, there are three elements to prophecy. You have, you have the revelation from God, and then you have the interpretation of that revelation, and then you have the application. 
So God reveals something to you. And, and, and often, almost every time for me, it's honestly, it's like this. It's, I, I really wish it was like God had golden tablets that he was just, you know, putting into my brain and, oh, the Lord is speaking in this moment. Here's the, it's never, ever, ever that way. Here's how it is. I just had a thought. That's an interesting thought. That is a really bizarre thought. I wonder, that could maybe be the Lord speaking or maybe I had some really bad tacos last night and it's just indigestion. Maybe this is the Lord. And all of a sudden it's like this idea, this thing comes to mind and it's a revelation. Some people I know, they have dreams, they have visions. Some people I know, um, they get these pictures in their head, uh, these images. Some people I know, they just have this strong internal impression that the Lord is saying something. Some people I know, uh, th- they'll say, yeah, I, I actually hear the voice of the Lord. That's never happened to me. I, I believe it could happen, but it's never happened to me. So there's all these ways that God speaks. And here's what I want you to see, that God, yes and amen, speaks to us through his word. Preeminently, primarily, that is how the, the word, or that is how the Lord speaks to us. And he's spoken ultimately to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 tells us that. But he also, if you are really going to pay attention and obey what this says, you have to grapple with the fact that it also says that God speaks through the gift of prophecy. He reveals things to people, and then they then speak that. Now, it doesn't mean that it's without error and always perfect and always right. Sometimes, because it is a revelation from God, but then it enters into my own interpretation or application of that revelation, sometimes it can be off or wrong or all. Uh, think God is saying a certain thing and it really, I was off a little bit or totally wrong altogether. And that's why First Thessalonians chapter five says, don't quench the spirit but, and don't despise prophecies, but test all things and hold fast to what is good. We're actually called to test with the authority of the word. And if it's ever going against what he has already revealed and is an errant, inspired, authoritative scripture, then we throw it out. But if it lines up, then maybe it's from the Lord and we hold fast to what is good. This is the gift of, of prophecy, and it's beautiful. Who could prophesy? Who could prophesy? Well, um, I love this in Acts chapter two. Peter is standing up, and all these people are like, what is this loud noise we're hearing, and it's Pentecost, and the Spirit of God has just come in power, and, and Peter stands up, and he says, I'll tell you what it is. He goes, Joel talks about this, and here's what he says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. What will happen? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That was scandalous for this culture in the first century. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. In other words, he's saying everyone who has the Holy Spirit has the potential of walking in this gift. Doesn't mean you're gonna be a prophet. Doesn't mean that you're gonna be you know, dramatically, powerfully used by God, but every single person that follows Jesus can hear the voice of God. Jesus himself says, I know my sheep, and they know me, and they hear my voice. So if you're a Christian, God is speaking to you, and oftentimes you don't even realize that it's God. You honestly chalk it up to your own brain or your own random thoughts or your own, and you don't know it's the Lord. So what I want to do is quickly share some stories uh, to kind of put some flesh on this for you so that you can see how this might work in the life of our church or just uh, as you live inside of the context of community on mission. Uh, let, me, let me tell you a story about Charles Spurgeon first. So I love Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon's my, uh, one of my heroes in church history, and I've got uh, hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of his sermons, thousands of his sermons. 
And uh, at one point in one of his sermons on a Sunday morning, this is a 19th century preacher in England, in London, he stops his sermon in the middle of the sermon. Can you just paint this picture? He's preaching just like I've been, and all of a sudden he just stops. And he points at a guy, and he accuses that man of taking an unjust prophet on a Sunday. Now, this is what the man said. He's, he's writing to a friend, and this is in Spurgeon's autobiography, the letter to his friend. He said, Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me, and in his sermon he pointed to me, and he told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I should not have minded that. But he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before, um, and, sorry, Nine pence the Sunday before, and that there was four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day, and four pence was just the profit. But how he should know that, I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday, and at first I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards I went, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. I mean, can you imagine? And so I want to do that in this moment. I'm just kidding. Like, can you imagine? I'm going to tell everybody what you did last week. If that happened, I mean, and this is Spurgeon. It's not like a church of 30 people. This is a church of 30,000 people. It's the largest church in the world in the 19th century. He didn't know this guy from Adam. He points at him. And by the way, Spurgeon didn't believe in the gift of prophecy like I do, so I'm going to freely admit that. But he's, you don't have to believe in this gift to walk in it. In fact, most people I know, they don't believe in it, and they're like, I just really feel like God wants me to say, and they would never call it prophecy, but that's exactly what it is. I was thinking about you this week, and God put you on my heart, and I just want to encourage you that da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Spurgeon went on to say this. He said, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or, in I, or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come, see a man that has told me all the things that I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. This is why the gift matters. In fact, this is why in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that if an unbeliever comes in, someone that isn't a Christian, and we have, we have several of you here in this room right now, we're so glad you're here. But if a non-Christian comes in and you're all praying in tongues, he's gonna go, yep, see ya, I'm gonna go find another church, you guys are crazy. But if an unbeliever comes in, and a prophetic word is given. He's going to fall down on his face. The secrets of his heart will be exposed. And he's going to say, God is surely among these people. This is why we want this gift. So let me share a few more stories. Last year, Frontline did a youth camp. Uh, all four of our congregations got together, and we did a youth camp together. And uh, one of the nights, I was teaching for that each night. And one of the nights, we were teaching on the Holy Spirit. And so after I was done teaching, I tried to carve out some space for us to just try to see what the Lord wanted to do. And so we just took a minute, we prayed, come Holy Spirit, we invite you, come do what you want to do. And we were all kind of praying and watching the students and just trying to be good listeners. God, are you speaking to us in anything right now? Are you, are you saying anything? And I looked at this young man that was on the first row or second row, a uh, 15-year-old man, young man, and um, I just started to have these random thoughts. 
honestly, just bizarre thoughts about him and his life. And I started to think about him as, as uh, like playing sports and specifically playing baseball. And then I started almost like, a, like in my mind's eye, I was seeing him sitting in his room sobbing, crying, and he was feeling all the shame from his dad because he wasn't good at baseball. And he was struggling with identity and he was really trying to figure out who he was and he was, just pray- he was almost praying to God, God, if you would just make me better at baseball, my dad would really truly be proud of me. He'd be proud of me. So I, 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 I want to tell you, like, I was so nervous. Every time this happens, I get so nervous, I get so freaked out and I'm like, man, I'm going to look like such an idiot if I just got done teaching this and I try to walk in this and it's a complete failure, no one's going to believe that it'll look, I'll look so dumb, which like literally doesn't matter at all that I look dumb, but this was the fear that I had. And so I, 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 I took a risk and I took, I took a step and I said, okay, um, hey, would you stand up for me? And he did. He stood up and he felt awkward and I felt awkward and everybody else in the room felt awkward. And I said, uh, I, I, I sent up a test balloon. Hey, do you play sports, right? This was my test balloon. And if he said, no, I hate sports and I hate you and I hate this can't, like then I would have been like, all right, see ya, never mind. That was not bad tacos. Test balloon, do you, do you play sports? Yeah, I do. Do you play baseball? Yeah, I do. Okay, Whew. maybe this really is the Lord and not my thoughts. I said, I saw you sitting in your room just sobbing because you, you were struggling at wanting to get better at baseball, and you were even praying, God, make me better at baseball. I wish I was better, and you were feeling all the shame, and, and God the Father wants you to know that he delights in you, and he loves you, and he's pleased with you, and your identity is never wrapped up in your ability to do sports. Your identity is wrapped up in the fact that you have a good father that loves you, and he is just sobbing. He's just sobbing, and so I know, like, this must have meant, I don't know what that means. It must have meant something to him, after the, after the thing was over, some leaders came up to me and they said, do you know that kid? I was like, I've never seen that kid in my life. He goes to Frontline Downtown and they said, his dad is the baseball coach and he's been really struggling with this because he's not good and they benched him and he's felt all this weirdness. I mean, imagine your dad's the coach and you're not good, so you're not playing and you got all this weirdness with your friends and he's been really wrestling with insecurity and with identity and what you said, like, the Lord met him tonight. That's why we want the gift of prophecy. He can read in the Bible that God loves him, and I'm not discounting that. That's beautiful, and, and Jesus has shown us preeminently at the cross his love for us, but, but here's what's so bizarre about the grace of God. Sometimes he loves us enough to shut down what we're doing and pause and highlight one specific person and say, you matter to me, and I know you, and I know your story, and I really do love you. This is why we want this gift. Here's another story. Years ago, there's a, there's a lady in our church who's been a missionary in Mozambique. Her name is Honey Davidge, a friend of mine. Some of you know Honey. Some of you were there. Years and years ago, we were praying for her. She was about to go to a camp to serve as a leader. And it's always weird when you're saying her name in public. You're like, hey, Honey. I mean, Honey Davidge, not my Honey, different Honey. Um, so we're praying for our friend. And, uh, and I just have this name pop into my head, Rachel. I'm like, that's so not it. No, don't do this. This is weird. And so, do I, do I, should I say something? No, let's do Okay, I should say something. So I said, hey, I, I'm hearing this name, Rachel. Or not hearing. I wasn't hearing anything, but I just had the thought, Rachel. And um, I said, I think there's this girl, Rachel, that you're going to meet at this camp, and the, she really needs to be loved by the Lord. She really needs uh, to know that God cares about her. So just heads up on that. I hope that's true, you know. All right, there you go. I've done my part now. So uh, three weeks later, she goes to the camp, 
they have a, a leader meeting right before the camp starts and she turns to the person sitting next to her. She's like, hi, I'm Honey, what's your name? Hi, I'm Rachel. And he's like, bing, okay, I've got to keep that in my head. A few days later, it's, uh, it's late at night, it's like 11 and uh, everybody's gone to bed. It's uh, on OBU's campus, so not a big campus, but everybody's in their dorms and they're going to sleep and she feels like the Lord is saying, honey, get out of bed and go find Rachel. So she does. She literally gets out of bed. It's 11 p.m. You can ask her the story. She goes and she's walking around campus. She's like trying to find this girl, Rachel, and she does. She finds the girl and she's sitting by herself. And uh, so Honey walks up to this leader named Rachel and she said, hey, I know this is going to sound really weird and crazy, but um, she told her the story. We were praying for you and this guy said this and I've been praying for you the last few weeks. And Rachel just broke down crying. And she said, like, what, what's going on? And, and Rachel said, well, last week it came out that my mom was having an affair with the pastor of our church. And it's completely wrecked our church. It's ripped us apart. It's wrecked me. And I was just praying, like, God, are you there? Do you care about me? And she was in so much pain. And Honey was able to say, God has known about this, and we've been praying by name for you for three weeks. That's why we want the gift of prophecy. Here's another one. This one's weird. There's a guy who was trying to walk in this and um, they were at a conference and, and they opened up a time for some prophetic words and he pointed to uh, a lady in the back and he said, uh, hey, would you stand up for me? And she did. And, and he, he said, I know this sounds so weird, but God wanted me to tell you that you're wearing a yellow shirt. And what was weird about that is she actually was wearing a yellow shirt and everyone was like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is why people hate the gift of prophecy you idiot. Like, why did you have to say that? She falls down on the ground weeping, just weeping. And the backstory is that she had a, a daughter who was in, uh, in and out of the hospital and had been in the hospital, and her husband said, just go to the conference, go to the conference, and you need a break. It had been a long season. And she, that morning, was so desperate. She literally prayed that morning, one of those, like, fired up and arrow prayers that you just never expect God to answer to. She said, God, if my daughter's gonna be okay, if my daughter's gonna be okay, because they weren't sure if she was gonna live or not, if my daughter's gonna be okay, have someone tell me today that I'm wearing a yellow shirt. So he said, yeah, God wanted me to tell you that you're wearing a yellow shirt. And just, she just knew in that moment, okay, God, and, and ended up, her daughter ended up being just fine. On and on and on. Yeah, you can get excited about that. One of, one of <laughs> some of us are excited. This is, we ought to get excited about what the Lord does and wants to do. Okay, so I need to, I need to bring this to a close, uh, and then I need to open up some space for, for maybe the Lord to do some stuff. So here's what I would tell you. If you are here and you feel like, you know, I really want to grow in this. I really want to grow in this. Or maybe you're skeptical, but like, how do we take the ne next step? How do we embrace being a church that has deep, good, profound theology, loves our Bibles, loves, loves to really follow Jesus in his word, and be a church that loves and honors and craves and desires the Holy Spirit and his gifts? How do we do that? Well, here's the first thing I would tell you. Number one, I want to encourage you, do the hard work, biblically and theologically, do the hard work to grow in your understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. You see, some of you, you're skeptical and you are, you're not really willing to go there, but up to this point in your journey with Jesus, you haven't also been willing to read any books 
or to wrestle with systematic theology on these issues and figure out why should we believe this and what evidence do we have biblically that this stuff is real. And so we've put together, if you'll show the slide, we've put together a list of resources that I want to recommend. This is a great place for you to start. Uh, one of the resources is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's going to give you uh, all the different views. It's over 1,100 pages. Listen, I've read it cover to cover over three times cover to cover, and I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying I dropped out of college, and if I can understand it, so could you. If I can understand this book, so could you. It's easy to understand, and the good news is when you're not reading it, you can use it to lift weights. So all kinds of resources, some of the best resources that thousands and thousands of pages that we've read and studied and podcasts and all these things that we want to recommend you start with. Number two, I want to encourage you, if you're theologically already there, you believe that this is real, you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a continuationist or I'm a charismatic, I, I'm all in, I believe this stuff. I want to encourage you to fight against functional cessationism. Cessationism is a theological term for people that believe the gift ceased uh, when the last apostle died, and there's literally no biblical evidence for that as a side note. Um, but if that's what you believe, I want to encourage you to wrestle with that. And if you're saying, no, I don't believe that, I'm already there, I believe this stuff, we'll fight against functional cessationism. Because this is something that, unlike good theology, that once you have it, it's just with you, this is one of those areas that's more like prayer that you have ebbs and flows and seasons in your life where prayer is like really something you're stepping into and other seasons where your prayer life is, is pathetic if you're anything like me. And so same with the gifts of the Spirit. It's like functionally, I, I'm not there often, but theologically I believe this stuff and I just want to encourage you to not embrace a theology of something that you're also not trying to walk in practically. Amen? So don't just be open to this, guys. Don't just be open to God eagerly desire, especially that you may prophesy. Number three, I want to ask you to make a conscious decision to move past fear. The greatest thing that keeps our church back and walking in this gift is we are just freaked out. We are so afraid of looking weird. Every time I have a prophetic word, I, I am so nervous about how I look. And here's what's so crazy about that. Like, it honestly, Jesus really doesn't care about how I look and how sad would it be for me to be so concerned with my own ego that I'm unwilling to potentially withhold a particular gift that he wants to give to someone who may be hurting or in need. It's fear of doing it wrong. What if I mess up? What if I don't do it right? So, and with that, number four, I want you to be willing to risk. So, uh, just make a conscious decision with me to move past fear, but we, be willing to risk. Here's the thing. If you stand up and you take a risk and you do it wrong and, and you maybe give a prophetic word and people are like, no, sorry, none of that's true or that doesn't mean anything to me, then listen, here's the good news. Nobody died, Right? And you just look weird. That's all it is. It's like not the end of the world. But when you think about what we believe as Christians, we believe that Jesus is God. We believe that he was born of a virgin somehow miraculously by the Holy Spirit. We believe that he exists, but you can't see him because he's in heaven right now, seated on a throne that you can't see. One day he's going to come back and make everything new. We believe some weird stuff, guys. It's okay to look weird. Be willing to risk. I've heard it said that the, uh, the nursery is messy and the graveyard is really tidy. And I'd way rather the messiness of life than the tidiness of a church that's full of death. Number five, 
learn to worship with your heart and with your body. This one's been uh, so encouraging to watch in the 11 o'clock service, watching you guys really go for it and worship as we gather to sing these beautiful truths to Jesus and ask things of him. It's been so fun to watch, but honestly, there are some Sundays, if I could just be honest with you as your pastor, that I am so depressed, not because I really just want you to go for it and respond and, and, and be engaged with your mind and your heart and your, your body, but it's like, man, are they not moved by the truth that they're singing? And it makes, it makes me sad, it really does. And I think one of the greatest lies that's crept into the American church is that all God cares about is your heart. Well, he preeminently cares about your heart. He ultimately cares about your heart. Your outward posture doesn't matter as much as your heart, but he also cares about your body. And you see all of these commands in Scripture to worship God not like this. Like, let me just give you some of them. Lifting up your hands. Psalm 134. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night and the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. He's not using metaphor. He's asking for you to lift up your hands and bless the Lord. Uh, Here's another one. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. I love this. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. He really wants you to do both. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. How should we pray? Well, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. That's why sometimes when we pray, I'm doing this, not because I'm trying to be extra spiritual, but because it says it. And I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. And because I don't really have anything to offer, I'm coming really needy to the one who does. So I'm really saying, would you give me what you have? Because I'm really jacked up and I need you. Lifting up your hands. I really hope on some Sundays you come in here and you're doing this, not because you feel close to Jesus, but because you feel far away from Jesus. And you're trying to get your heart there and your body there right? Shouting out. Here's one to make you uncomfortable. Psalm 33 verse 1. Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Last week I was preaching and I kind of gave this beautiful gospel and I was so ready for the shouts and it was like, That's beautiful. That really means a lot to my soul. I'm so happy that God loves me so much. And I was like, what is happening? I just gave the greatest truth of all time that your sins are forgiven and Jesus loves you and he'll never bring it up again and they're separated as far as the east is from the west and you have a new identity and you're invited into a kingdom that can't be shaken. How is that not exciting to anybody in the room? That's amazing. It's okay to shout for joy at times, right? Yeah. Here's another one. Thank you. Uh, Here's another one. Standing in silent awe. Some of you are killing it at this one. (laughs) Psalm 22, 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Sometimes you don't have words. Sometimes it's not right to raise your hands. Sometimes all you want to do is just stand there. God, you are, you are beyond what I could understand. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. How do you speak to that God sometimes? You stand there. Bowing down. 
but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. In my heart, no, I will bow down in the fear of you. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple, and I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things in your name and your word. So just as your pastor, I want to encourage you to take hold of all the ways God wants you to worship, not just emotionally, spiritually, secretly in your heart, but with your lips and with your hands and with your bodies and with your postures. Number six, I'm almost done. I want to ask you to come to church eager to encounter the presence of God. And not just on Sundays, right? Like in community and as we scatter on mission, I want you to go hungry. But if we don't learn to do it here in the safest place possible, how do we expect to do it out there where it's a little bit more intimidating? So I want you to come hungry and eager to encounter the presence of God. You see, what we're praying for as your pastors is spirit-filled liturgy and spirit-filled spontaneity. We want God to set you free when you take communion. We want him to encounter you with his love when you drink the wine and remember his shed blood for your sins. And we want to go, you know what? We weren't planning this, but we have some prophetic words that we need to give right now. We say that if we go five weeks without having the Spirit of God interrupt our service, then we're doing a really bad job as your pastors listening to his voice on a Sunday morning. And if every Sunday we're interrupted by the Spirit of God, then we're doing a really bad job as your pastors listening to the voice of God as we plan out the liturgy for the Sunday. We want spirit-filled liturgy and spirit-filled spontaneity. And then finally, number seven, I want to ask you to seek to live a life by the grace of God that delights in the Holy Spirit rather than grieves the Holy Spirit. I think one of the reasons why there's such little gifts, activities, Spirit of God activities in the American church is because the American church is grieving the Spirit of God constantly. I do it. And so we can't out of one side of our mouth say, we really want your presence come and draw near and then with my decisions do things that really hurt and grieve his heart.